You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. We come now uh, continuing our series in the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea starts the Minor Prophets. And as we've gone through this book, it clearly divides into two major sections. The first three chapters are certainly the well-known, this well-known sign of Hosea who marries uh, harlot Gomer. And the way in which the Lord uses that as a symbol of his love to his wayward people. And really from chapter 4, it it changes. And from chapter 4 really to chapter 14, it will be this condemnation, this judgment that the Lord is is speaking to his people. And so this evening we move to chapter 5. And so hear these words of Holy Scripture. Hear this, O priests, pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into the slaughter, but I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God. For the spirit of whoredom is within them. And they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children. Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah. The trumpet in Ramah, sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment, because he was determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim, and like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and sent to the great king. But he was not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim, and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and none, no one, shall rescue I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. Well, as we come to this chapter, a lot of what I find to be difficult with the prophets in general is that they just seem to say a lot of things. (laughs) They they, they use a lot of words that in some sense you wonder, could it be thinned down or or slimmed down and and just said simply, you have sinned and the Lord will judge you. I mean, you could do that. It would certainly lose its poetic thunder. And really, Hosea wants us to see and to constantly be reminded of the sinfulness of sin. But here in chapter 5, 
what he's doing and what the Lord is doing is that ultimately he is highlighting, he is showing forth a God who, yes, who hates sin, but a God who is working in a way to strip down and tear everything down, even to the bone, so that Israel and Judah would repent and return. There's this great scene in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, if you've read it recently, where Eustace, this boy, turns into a dragon. And near the end of it, Aslan, the lion, comes and must tear away this outer layer of skin. And for Eustace, it is an incredibly painful process. But at the end of it, he's now a boy once more, and he's able to be cleansed of his sin, as it were. It's this picture of this painful process, which is certainly what chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7 of Hosea are speaking about. But it's meant to be one that is necessary, for without holiness, no one will dwell with God. And so in chapter 5, we really are are expanding what has taken place in chapter 4. The first two verses, they expand the indictment that the Lord had. You may remember back uh, to the last time, uh, two Sundays ago, when we looked at chapter 4, there was this indictment against the priests. It was that Sunday that was not the best of days for ministers, as we looked at 1 Timothy in the morning. But he expands this indictment. No longer is just the priest, but it's moving outward. In verses 3 through 7, he expands the scope. Not, is it, not only is it just Israel that the Lord is indicting, but sadly Judah as well. This infection, it seems, is spreading. And finally, in verses 8 through 15, there's an expansion of the judgment. The judgment that's threatened in chapter 4 becomes all but a certainty in chapter 5. And so looking at the expansion of this indictment in verses 1 through 2, you'll note the way it begins. Hear this, O priests. This is certainly linking us, bringing us back to chapter 4, where the priests who are engaged in this idolatry are leading the people away from God. But note the way it continues, not just the priests, but now it's pay attention, O house of Israel, give ear, O house of the king, for the judgment is for you. The house of Israel now is in the crosshairs of Hosea the prophet as he thunders with the voice of the Lord. And you could look at the house of Israel in two different ways. One, the house of Israel could just simply mean that Hosea is is targeting all of Israel. And there's certainly truth in that. All of Israel is, is sinning and in sin and deserving of judgment unless they repent. But it's also possible that here Hosea is is particularly focused upon the social elites or the ruling class. And to me, I think that fits better with the context, as we'll see down below, that there seems to be there are these people, such as the king and the priests and the ruling classes, who are acting as a snare and as a trap for the people. That what they're doing is leading the people away, and not just away from God, but to their impending doom and destruction. So from these faithful leaders, faithless leaders, leading people into sin. And then Hosea also indicts the king, the house of the king. This would have been King Ahaz. And if you know your history of the kings, that most of the kings of Israel were wicked and engaging in idolatry. 
and King Ahaz was no different. And so now Hosea is indicting not just the priests, but the priests, the ruling class, and the king, and how all of them are a part of or complicit in Israel's coming downfall. Why is this happening? Well, he says at the second half of verse 1, For you have been a snare at Mizpah and spread a net upon Tabor. These are two mountains. And what he's speaking of here is there's snares and there's nets. You would think of the way in which you were to trap a bird or trap an animal by laying a net for it. And the unsuspecting animal walks through it and the trip wire is pulled and the animal is then ensnared and ultimately would be killed. But here it's almost pictured as you have these two great mountains and this net flying from it that is seeking to entrap and ensnare all of the Israelites and bring them to their demise. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. That speaks again of this idea of from the sin of idolatry comes forth actual sins of bloodshed. As we saw in chapter 4, bloodshed follows bloodshed. But note here, there is hope. Already at the beginning of chapter 5, the Lord says, but I will discipline all of them. I will discipline all of them. The imagery is is one of a father correcting a severely wayward child. And I think this helps us to ultimately see that the, the, the discipline and the judgment that is coming from the Lord is meant to be ultimately corrective and restorative in its scope. One of the most difficult passages that I've ever had to teach on is 1 Corinthians 5. And in that passage, Paul speaks of this man engaged in this gross sin that's being tolerated by the church. And Paul says, this should not be done. Even pagans look on and are shocked. And he says, what needs to happen is that this man needs to be cast out of the community, the covenant community. He needs to be sent out in order that he might be sifted by Satan and maybe, Lord willing, repent that he needs to see the effects of his sin and needs to experience judgment in order that he might repent. And here the Lord is doing that as Israel is constantly engaging in these sins. The Lord will not leave them or abandon them, but will correct them. In verses 3 through 7, Hosea now expands, not just uh, Israel is in the crosshairs of the judgment of the Lord, but now, sadly, Judah is as well. Though they were two separate kingdoms at this time in their history, they still had a shared history, a shared culture, a shared language. And at times there was even unity among the two kingdoms. And it seems as if Israel... It's infection, it's spread, it's sins spread to Judah. And Judah would end up in the same situation several years down the road as her sister Ephraim. And so Hosea starts in verses 3 through 4 with this sad state that Ephraim is. I know Ephraim, the Lord says. This idea of knowing as Adam knew his wife, this intimate, deep relational knowledge. But here it's used of God to say, I know what is deep down in my people's heart. Nothing is hidden from me. And what he sees at the core of his people, Israel, is that they have played the whore and that they are defiled. 
You can think of the psalmist. He cries out, Lord, vindicate me, search me, know me, understand me, see my heart. And here it's almost the opposite of that, where the Lord, looking at the wickedness of his people, reminds them that they cannot hide from him. That he knows exactly what is going on in their hearts. In verse 4, we see this tragedy that comes out of this. Their deeds do not permit them to return to their God, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. This isn't, this isn't God who is, is, is shunning and pushing his people away. This is his people who are now so consumed and so defiled that they have abandoned the Lord. And that they would rather have their sins than fellowship with God. That they are pictured like Gomer, Hosea's wife, who, though she has everything with her husband, she runs off for other lovers and would only return when all of that fell away. Which we'll see Israel will do the same. And the way in which Hosea here speaking, he speaks of them not as, as being directed and led by the Holy Spirit of God, but by this spirit of whoredom that is within them. Again, you can think of spirit as their, their internal, the ways in which their, 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 their worldview is leading them. And it leads them down this path of corruption. Really, it's speaking grimly of the fact that Israel is just totally and absolutely and completely corrupted to their very core. And then in verses 5 through 7, not only is it Israel, but also Judah as well. First, a witness is called. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. What this is, is signifying here is that Israel is so proud of all the things that they have, of their economic prosperity, of the, the freedom that they have, of all of their culture, all of these things they are immensely proud of. And you can see that the picture here as all of it is coming crumbling and crashing down around them. That they stand there testifying before them. Where is your help now? Really all of these things that they have trusted in will fall apart. Like the vivid parable that Jesus speaks of the man who built his house upon the sand. High tide is coming. And it will wash it all away. But then it moves on that not only will Israel and Ephraim stumble in their guilt Judah also shall stumble with them. The sad picture in chapter 4, the Lord said, please don't go down to Judah unless, lest you infect them with the same evil and wickedness and idolatry. But here is speaking of that Judah is going to follow. Notes the, the tense here. Judah also shall stumble with them. That Israel, that Judah is following the same path as Israel, and Judah will meet the same end, which will be exile. The book of Psalms really describes it. There, there are two paths to follow, the path of righteousness and the path of wickedness. Hosea really here speaking prophetically, are we going to follow Christ or are we going to follow Satan? One leads to destruction and the other leads to to life. But then it seems here that, that as they're, they're looking at and facing all of the things that are about to happen to them, 
It almost seems as if they make an about face in chapter, in verse 6, with their flocks and herds, they come to seek the Lord. Uh, here it's, it's as if they, they're coming back to the Lord and they have all of these animals that they're leading with them in order to sacrifice and appease the Lord. And yet the Lord says, they will not find me. He has withdrawn from them. And that's because they're, they're, they're wishing to return to God. But they're coming to God not with a contrite heart, not with repentance, but looking at it and going, we, we really are left without any option, and it seems like it would be better to be with God than what we're facing right now. We see that in verse 7, that they have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. They have born alien children, meaning that the, the, the offspring are sinners, speaking to the fact that the parents are sinners. It's also possible that here we're seeing Israel coming to the two different temple sites in Israel, in Gilgal and Bethel, to offer sacrifices at places in which the Lord did not command them to, in which were set up golden calves that the people worshipped as idols. And so it could be here that they're still confusing and bringing pagan worship in with the worship of God. And so God is not to be found. And he speaks of it really in three ways in verse 7. They've been faithless. They lack true saving faith. The sinful offspring point to a people who are mired in sin. And then this coming destruction spoken of here poetically. The new moon shall devour them with their fields. The new moon would have been the time of, of feasting and joy. It was a festival where they would have brought in the produce of the land. And they would have had this time of thanksgiving and feasting. Instead, this day will be a day when the new moon will, in a sense, feast on them, will devour them, but the land will devour them, but they will face judgment. And we still have much more to go in the book of Hosea, but even in this chapter, what we're already seeing is that corruption, that sin, it, it's spreading. We've seen that all too often with a pandemic and the way in which germs spread. Here we have this picture of sin, not as a little thing, but as a major thing, really bringing us back to this idea of total depravity, of complete corruption inside ourselves. And then we see also that it is something that we cannot remedy by ourselves. That sin is pictured as this all-consuming, all-controlling thing that ends in destruction and separation. But also Hosea, something else he'll be developing later is half-hearted obedience or half-hearted repentance. This will come up in chapter 6. This is what we've seen already in Hosea and Gomer's marriage. It almost seems as if they're just bringing all these animals without any true love or devotion in God, just trying to curry his favor. This is not out of a genuine desire and a genuine love for God. And I think at the end of it, Hosea just wants us to see the seriousness and the gravity of sin so that we can understand what salvation is. Think of the ways in which Jesus constantly seemed to be trying to divide the people to help them to understand that there, are, there is a true faith that leads to real repentance and there is a false faith 
that leads to damnation. I mean, think about the way in which he speaks of of people who seemingly live their life in service of him and who end up dying and come before his throne room. And he says to them, depart from me, for I never knew you. I mean, I have trouble even grasping what that would be like and what that would feel like. To have lived your life with this false faith. And Hosea wants us to be clear, wants us to understand that there is, is a false faith that will not help, but also that we'll see at the end in verse 15, there is a true faith built upon humility and repentance. And so Hosea expands as well his theme of judgment in verses 8 through 15. This is something that's already been threatened in chapter 4. and something that we'll continue to see in Hosea. But in chapter 8 through 15, we see an alarm is sounded. There's an announcement of impending doom. There's this addition. And there's an answer of the Lord. In verse 8, there's an alarm that sounded. Blow the horn in Gibeah and sound the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Beth-Avon. This this alarm, this trumpet would have been the ram's horn, the shofar, which would have been blown at times in order to alert the people, whether to call them to corporate worship um, or to call them to battle. Here it's like a watchman on a wall looking at an impending army invading and blowing the trumpet. And all of these lands actually are at the southern tip of Israel. If you think of, of the, the ways in which the tribes were spread out and given their land, uh, Ephraim was above, uh, Judah was below, and in between them was the tribe of Benjamin. You could almost think of it as a sandwich with Israel and Judah, and Benjamin is the middle. And that's what he's speaking of here, that all of these towns at the bottom, they're the ones in which the sound, the alarm, is coming out from. I think there's two reasons why these are the towns that are, are picked out. Because if the invasion were to take place from the north and come down, these would be the very last lines of defense. At this point, it's really signifying, showing the extent of judgment, that it's total, that it'll be complete even to the furthest tip of Israel. But I think also this would show and be a sign of warning because this would be the border between Israel and Judah. And Judah would see what the sin of Israel brought about. And it would be a a sign to them, right, that they couldn't miss, they wouldn't be able to ignore. And yet, tragically, that's exactly what they'll do. And in verse 9, there's this announcement of the Lord. The Lord says, Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment. Among the tribes of Israel, I make known what is sure. In other words, he's saying Israel is going to be destroyed. I, the Lord, have declared it. And as I've declared it, it will happen. And after this, in verse 10, there's this addition. Again, this theme cropping up that it's not just Israel that's wicked, but Judah as well. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. Upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. 
He's speaking of here, again, that, that uh, the tribes and inside the tribes, people were given land when they came into the promised land, and it was to be kept inside their clan or inside their family. And here you, you likely have those who are wealthy going against those who are poor without resources and moving those markers of the land in order to gain more. I mean, you can think of this. To us, it, it's, it's something we just wouldn't have to deal with. But you can think of it in terms of, of someone leaving a will, a parent's leaving a will to their children. Imagine somebody coming into the family and somehow through nefarious purposes, getting the will changed so that all of the assets would go to them and not to their children. We would look at this and be like, this is, this is evil for someone to do that. And here, what really Hosea is saying, not necessarily that they're doing this, but this is the way in which they are characterized. They are like those who show no care, not just for their neighbor, but for their own kin. And that they would actually outright harm them if it profits them. And so we're given an answer in verse 11. Why is this destruction coming? Ephraim is oppressed because he's determined to go after filth. He'll be crushed in judgment because he's determined to go after filth. Well, in verses 12 through 14, it seems as if the Lord is making this spiritual diagnosis of Israel and Judah. Then there's a rather shocking statement in verse 12 that the Lord says, I will be like a moth to Ephraim and like dry rot to the house of Judah. Moths make clothing useless. Dry rot makes dwellings useless. I mean, you can think about the way in which mold seems to be so problematic. I often buy bread for the fun of watching it go bad in mold. But you can think of the dangers of things like black mold, which is less to joke about. If that gets into the walls of a house, it becomes a very serious thing. And here, the Lord is pictured as, as this one who is coming in and destroying from the inside out his people. That he's, he's making no mistake here that when this army arrives to destroy his people, he was the cause of it, ultimately. For Israel and Judah are both sick. They have these serious wound about them. In a sense, it's as if they're, they're dying and they need help. In some sense, they actually seem to correctly diagnose the problem. They realize they're sick. They realize they need help, yet they actually go after the wrong cure. I mean, just like taking the wrong form of medicine can actually be incredibly disastrous. Even hurting or, or killing somebody when it was meant to help. Here, Israel goes after to the king of Assyria, to this great king, to find help and to find relief. Instead of going to the Lord for help. I mean, think of the way in which they're, they're willing to go to pagans. Pagans who worship false gods and who ultimately do not care about their welfare. Actually, the Assyrians would be used by the Lord to destroy Israel. And so God gives a plan of treatment. Just like at the beginning, talking about the ways in which uh, Lewis brings out in Narnia this way of, of Eustace, the dragon, being torn in order that he would be healed. We see God like a lion, like a young lion to Ephraim and to Judah, that he will tear off, that he will tear 
he will carry off. No one will be able to rescue. And then he comes to verse 15. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So verse 15, there is hope here. And this is what, as as Hosea has been bringing out, the way in which the Lord is like a husband who is long-suffering, but also he is one who is just, who does not tolerate sin. And so I think we see here, as we come to a close, that God tears in order that he might heal. He disciplines so he can restore. And ultimately what Hosea is, is wrestling with here He's wrestling with how how do we have a God who is on the one hand merciful and loving and patient and long-suffering and on the other hand have a God who is all-consuming holy fire of justice and a hatred for sin. How do we put and bring both of those pieces together? You know, the easiest way, I think, is we just minimize sin. (laughs) We minimize sin in ourselves and forget that God hates it. And I think if you were to ask him, how much do you hate sin? I think he would say with an intensity of a white, hot, burning star that would destroy you from a million miles away, that he hates sin. But note the way in which Hosea could not even see what the Lord is doing. That ultimately it's the cross where we find mercy and justice. Hosea has been helping us to see sin, not in the abstract that, well, I'm a sinner, which is true, but rather what sin looks like, what sin feels like, what I have done, that I deserve judgment, that you deserve judgment, that we are truly corrupt and evil people left to our own devices. We may not be as bad as we could be. But Hosea here really starts to shine the light of the cross. That it's at the cross that justice is perfectly meted out, but also mercy flows forth. And really, Hosea is asking, do we come to the cross pleading for mercy? I think of the lines of the song, nothing in my hands I bring, but simply to the cross I cling. And we would ask, is this what characterizes us? If you know that you are forgiven, this is who we are. We we are those who have experienced God's mercy. But Hosea, on the other side, he speaks of those, if you are without Jesus Christ, this judgment is coming. Because either you will experience justice without Christ or mercy within him. And so he is saying, acknowledge your guilt, seek my face, seek me, and I will be found. Come to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this book. Though it is hard to hear, but to understand truly what it is that you hate sin, but yet you love us in Christ, just as you loved your people Israel and Judah, so you love your people today. So Heavenly Father, we pray that we would look towards the cross to see mercy and justice so beautifully met. We ask this in Jesus' name.
You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S, dot co, dot U-K. 